about this series. Um, you know, uh, if you've ever read anything about the book of Philippians, you know that a theme that runs through this book is the theme of joy. And Paul mentions this theme five times uh, throughout the book of uh, Philippians. And it's pretty amazing to think about the Apostle Paul languishing in a Roman jail, and yet he is writing about this topic of joy and encouraging the people in Philippi to be joyful. Uh, just knowing the background of Philippians challenges me with my, with my attitude. Uh, there's another uh, idea in the book of Philippians, and that's the idea that the Christian life is a journey. The Christian life is, is a, a race. It's not a race like a sprint, but it's a race like a marathon. And so we're going we're gonna to conjoin those two ideas in this series and talk about Philippians as uh, a book that tells us how to make the journey into genuine joy. Now, when I think about the, this idea of joy, I think joy is very different than happiness. Uh, you can be joyful, and yet the circumstances are bad. You can be joyful, and yet uh, things have come crashing down around you. So joy has a different level than happiness has. Uh, one of my favorite authors defines it this way, joy is the pervasive and constant sense of well-being that comes when you know you're safe and have purpose in God's big universe. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul in jail? And he realizes, I, I, am, I am safe in the will of God, even in jail. And I have, a, I have a purpose in God's big universe. Well, Paul's an apostle, but we all are followers of Jesus, and we could say the same thing. No matter what's happening in our lives, we are safe in God's purpose, safe in God's big story. And joy is that constant sense that we, we know that we're safe and have purpose in God's big universe. Whether we're in jail or whether we're prosperous like the Philippians apparently were. Now, um, this morning I'm just going to introduce the book with the first two verses. And the verses go like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I take the historical background of the book of Acts and these two verses, I think we can, we can coalesce an idea in these, these two verses, that these verses give us three essentials for a life of spiritual influence. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Part of living a lifestyle of joy is knowing that I'm, I'm in God's big story with purpose. And part of that purpose is having a life of spiritual, spiritual influence. Now, I want to I introduce this guy here. I, I got to know this guy when I was uh, in my 20s, and he was in his late 30s. Uh, Mark Erickson was a medical doctor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Mark was, uh, was uh, an, an internal medicine doctor at St. Mary's Hospital in Milwaukee. I didn't know him at first as a doctor. He taught a Bible study for college students, and about 40 of us would flock to his house, and we would listen to this medical doctor teach the Bible. I was so captivated by one of his messages that I, I listened to it over and over and over and over again as a college student. I saw Mark Erickson uh, the next summer 
because I was working uh, part-time in the St. Mary's Hospital, and I saw him interact with patients all the time. And the guy who taught my Bible study in the summers was just as authentic in the, in the OR, in the, in the, not the OR, but the ER. And uh, he was the real deal. All of his life was about doing ministry. Well, he uh, started a, a church in my parents' house when I was in college, the latter part of my time in college. And that church flourished into a, a significant church in, in the Milwaukee area. But th for, for this guy, when I knew him as a doctor, his whole life was about spiritual influence. It was about ministry. There was never any sort of secular, sacred dichotomy. You know, I've punched out of being a Christian, and now I'm going to do my, my real life. There was, there was never any of that. It was always perfectly conjoined. Not perfectly, because he's human, but it was always significantly uh, conjoined. And so, he became, a, he became a, a model to me. Now, when we talk about spiritual influence, we're going look to at, look at three things that will lead towards spiritual influence in these verses. And the first one is a hard one. The first one is a hard one because to be a person of influence, you will encounter both pain and power. Now, that's exactly how the church at Philippi was planted. It was planted with a combination of God's power, His leadership, but there was also a significant amount of pain in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, let me, let me give you a little background on the story of how this church was planted. Uh, in the year 50 AD, in July of 50 AD, Paul's on a second missionary journey. He's got three people with him. He has Silas, Timothy, and Luke. When they arrive in the region of Phrygia, they encounter some brick walls in terms of their spiritual influence. Brick wall number one comes when they try to go southwest to the region of Asia Minor, and that would have taken them to Ephesus, most likely, logical place to go because it was a big city. And the, Luke says the Holy Spirit banned them from going there. Now, that, that's kind of strange because you know, you'd, you'd think, okay, good motives, good ideas, going to a certain place. Holy Spirit says, no, you're not going there. So they say, okay, um, no problem. We'll, we'll go northwest, presumably to the city of Byzantium, uh, which is also known as Constantinople. Today it's Istanbul. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but most likely that's their, that's their direction, big city, logical place to go. And the Holy Spirit again says, no. You're not going there. Now, if I'm the Apostle Paul, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, <laughs> uh, two closed doors, where do you want me to go? No answer. So they go west to Troas, and when they get to Troas, uh, which is on the coast up there on the Aegean Sea, when they get to Troas, uh, and by the way, Troas is very close to the ancient city of Troy. Uh, that Homer writes about in, in his, his Iliad. Uh, they get to Troas, and Paul go, gets to his room where he's sleeping. His head hits the pillow, and Paul has a dream. He has a vision. And the vision is a man from Macedonia. Now, realize Macedonia is on the other side of the Aegean Sea in what we would call today the European continent. So this is a different continent 
a man from a different country, a man from a different culture, a man with uh, a, a background that was different. And the man from Macedonia says, come over here, cross the Aegean Sea, and help us out, help us out here in Europe. So, Paul wakes up the next morning, and he determines that they're going to go. Now, the problem is that Macedonia is about the size of Pennsylvania. And the man from Macedonia didn't tell them where to go when they got there. Now that you think, okay, well, great, go to Pennsylvania. Where? Where do we go in Pennsylvania? Well, back in the ancient world, that was not that big a deal because you would always go to the, to the leading city. I mean, if God calls you to England, you're going to go to London. If God calls you to, Paris, uh, to France, you're going to go to Paris. If God calls you to Oklahoma, you're going to go to the leading city, which is Bartlesville, obviously. Uh, that was just kind of a slam dunk for them. And so, uh, okay, we're going to the city of Philippi. Back then, this was, this was not an easy trip. You, you took these kinds of vessels. You didn't have your own stateroom. You didn't have your own tour guide. And they cross over the Aegean to Neapolis, which is the seaport city of Philippi. They walk the, then the eight miles from uh, Neapolis, uh, Neapolis to, to Philippi, and they're there. Now, let's pause for a moment and let's, let's think about the significance of the story so far. If you're going to have genuine spiritual influence, it's often going to start with a clear leading from God. Sometimes God's leadings are very quiet, like a still small voice, but you have a hunch. You have a conviction, you have an idea, you have a nudge. And sometimes spiritual influence begins with that nudge, that leading, that, that conviction. Other times, leadings feel epic and major. It's like you hear an audible voice from God, or maybe it's an inaudible voice from God, but clearly it's God's voice. Maybe you dream a dream. Sometimes leadings uh, come in different forms as well, the encouragement of a friend. Leadings come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, but spiritual influence often begins with a clear, direct leading from God like Paul had in, in, in Troas. So when, um, um, when you think about your spiritual influence, my question is, are you open to God's specific leading? There are some theological positions that say God doesn't do that anymore. So, don't expect it. It ain't going to happen. We would wholeheartedly embrace the idea that God loves to pour out specific leadings so that you will have spiritual influence. Last night, um, I uh, was in the process of, of you know, going over my message for this morning and watching the Seahawks game. Uh, I, I mean, I know those two things are like really, really, and then a third thing happened because the Lord convicted me about texting somebody who I really felt convicted to pray for at that very moment. That's a lot of things going on at once, but God, God can lead in so many different ways, even during a football game. And my question is, um, that's not the ideal place to receive leadings, uh, you know, just saying that's not the ideal place. But my question is, you know, are you building places in your life where you can hear the voice of God? 
So uh, God's leading for Grace Community Church in 2003 to go to Cuba was crystal clear. Elders had a crystal clear idea. That's where we needed to be in this next season of our, of our ministry. When my um, son Jared uh, started an internet-based business in North Africa, uh, there was clear leading from God. And I'm, I'm just asking, are you building places into your life where you can receive the clear leading from God about you having spiritual influence? So let's think about, go back to the story. Paul and company are now, uh, now in the city of Philippi, and they're standing on a street corner. And Philippi is a pretty big place. There's the ruins of it up on the screens. You've got to use your imagination to think about what it would have been like in the first century. Um, they're standing on the street corner, big, bustling, ancient city. And they're thinking, what now? Is like the man from Macedonia going to show up on the street corner and tell us, tell us uh, what, what to do? That wasn't happening. Let me tell you a little bit about, about this city of Philippi. It was founded by the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon. And it became a Roman colony in 42 BC when uh, Mark Antony defeated the killers of Julius Caesar at the Battle of Philippi in an appreciation. It was made a Roman senatorial province in 27 BC. That was a big deal. To be a, a citizen of Philippi was a very prestigious thing. So it is a big, bustling, booming metropolis. It's famous and it's proud. It's proud. So you're Paul, you're a foreigner, and you're there. How do you feel in this proud city? You, you th think about the people in Chicago. They won the World Series. They're feeling pretty good. Um, when cities become prideful, uh, there is a tendency to reject things that disrupt the status quo. And now things begin to disrupt the status quo. The first person to come to Christ is a wealthy cloth merchant from Thyatira. They go down to, this, to the river, the Gangites River, and because there's no synagogue there. And so the Jews would meet by the riverside. So they go down to the Gangites River, and there's some people there who are worshiping, Jews who are worshiping, and, and Lydia there from Thyatira is there. And Lydia is delighted, I'm sure, that a Jewish rabbi is coming there, and, and Paul opens up the Scriptures, and he teaches, and Lydia's heart is opened up to Christ, and she comes to Christ. And her household comes to Christ. Now think of the irony of this. The irony is that Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man and yet the first person to come to Christ in Philippi is a woman, a, a rather accomplished woman, a woman who's a manufacturer's representative, apparently, of a dying firm, a, a, a firm that dyes clo clothing in Thyatira, you know, rep representing her company in this leading city of Macedonia. Ironic. Vision of a man, but a woman comes, comes to Christ. So things are not just so totally clear-cut, and yet God is, God is clearly leading. Lydia gets, uh, there's, the, there's the river, that is the river that, that is there in Philippi right now, and after she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. 
it seems that the church in Philippi got started in Lydia's house, the wealthy cloth merchant from Thyatira. God is clearly leading, but his leading is, is a little bit mysterious. And the second person to come to Christ is a woman who was demon-possessed. You, you think about, about human trafficking today, and it's awful. It's terrible. Human trafficking in the ancient world, awful, terrible. Wherever it shows up, it's awful, it's terrible. This woman was trafficked into slavery, and she has had what they called a python spirit. She was able to, she had a demon inside her, and she could tell the future through her demonic powers. And uh, for a while, Paul puts up with the fact that she is, the demon inside her is hassling them. <clears throat> and finally, Paul says, come out of her. And the demon comes out, and she now loses her ability to tell the future, which means she lose, her owners lose the profit that comes from that, and that disrupted the status quo. A mob forms. The people in Philippi actually strip Paul and Silas of their clothing and begin to beat them with the, with the ancient equivalent of baseball bats, Roman rods were the ancient equivalent of about what a baseball bat would look and feel like, just pelting them with baseball bats on the back. And then they go into jail, and, and then another person comes to Christ. This is the jail in Philippi uh, that they think Paul and Silas were in. Uh, but they're, they're in jail. They're in the inner part of the jail. They're in stocks, so they can't lie down. And then an earthquake happens. Jail opens up. Paul and the rest of the prisoners are able to be freed. Uh, they stay there. The Philippian jailer now comes to Christ. Wow, what chaos and pain. And that brings us to the next principle. You know, not only does God provide influence through specific leadings, but God provides influence in the context sometimes of our pain. And here's what I want to tell you. Pain and power often happen in pairs. They often happen in pairs. If you want to have spiritual influence, it is often true that power and pain will come together. We see that in life, don't we? We say that in, in, in life. When moms bring a child into the world, they rejoice in the miracle of new birth, but it's painful. You've got pain and joy together. When athletes are training for competition, they love winning, but they also have to put up with the pain. Um, Paul, uh, pain and power often flow together in the Christian life. Now, notice that God's miraculous power kicks in again because, you know, not only do we have this earthquake, but we have the Philippian jailer coming to Christ and his household, and now it's, it's like the church in Philippi is, is growing. So, does that strike you as a bit weird, pain and power working together? How'd you feel if a mom said to you, boy, I really want a baby. I just don't want to put up with the labor and delivery. Well, that's part of the deal. Um, when, when my daughter was, was in high school, you know, pondering these things, she said, Mom, I mean, would it be possible for, like, you to bear my child and deliver it so that I didn't have to go through that? My, my, my wife said, 
Sarah, honey, that's, that's not how this works. Not how this works. Um, what would you say to the piano student who says, I want to pay Mozart's 25th piano concerto? I still want the pain of practice. What would you say to the, to the would-be Navy SEAL who says, I want to blow stuff up and beat up bad guys. I just don't want to do sit-ups and push-ups. You'd say, wait a second, that, that, that's how this works. Pain and power often work together in the Christian life. That's just how things, in life, not the Christian life, in life, that's how it works. And it works together also in the Christian life. So now, a, a dozen years have passed after the church gets, gets, gets founded, and Paul ha has now traveled up to Rome. He is a prisoner in Rome. He's in his own rented quarters. I'm not saying that this picture is exactly what his rented quarters looks like, but I, I guarantee you it was not the Hilton Garden Inn. It was, it was a pretty drab place. And Paul is living in prison two whole years at his own expense, welcoming all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So here's Paul writing this book in prison, and is, does, he, does he cop an attitude of entitlement? Is there, is there an attitude in here of, poor me, poured myself out for all of you guys, look what it got me, look, it got me in jail. There's no shred of that. Instead, there is this exuberant joy that suggests I'm part of a big story that God is writing and if I'm in jail, that's part of the process. If I'm out of jail, that's part of the process. All that matters is that I'm part of this big story. If you would become a spiritual influencer, um, you will encounter both pain and power. I, I did a little, put a little math to this. And uh, think about the number of times, the, the years that Paul spent in prison. It was a total of six years or approximately one-fifth of his ministry. It's a long time, and he evidences an amazing, amazing attitude. You know, sometimes we think, well, if, I, if I'm encountering pain, something's wrong. And we say that because a lot, a lot of times we, brought in, we, we buy into the radical prosperity movement that says, God never wants you to be unhappy. Always wants you to be happy and upbeat and joyful and everything going great. Yeah, well, that's not how life works. What God often does is He pours out power in the midst of your pain. I think about the number of people who have profoundly impacted my life. You know what's true of every one of them? They went through a dark night of the soul. And in that dark night of the soul, they learned things about God that can be learned in no other way. And therefore, when they talk authentically and powerfully out of their past pain and God's triumph, that they're worth listening to. They're worth emulating because they dealt with life with God's gracious power. Those are the people who have real spiritual influence. So that leads us to a, to a second component of spiritual influence, and that is if we want to be a person of influence, We've constantly got to go back to common theme, our position in Christ. We constantly have to go back to our position in Christ. So we, we look again at Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the what? All the saints 
who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. Saints. Uh, when you read those words, you ever, you ever kind of get tripped up over those words a little bit? Because in, in our culture, what, how do we use the, word, the term saint? Uh, we use the term saint in terms of the Catholic saints. I did a little research this week on the number of Catholic saints. There are officially 921. Unofficially, there are a lot because before the 5th century, a lot of people were canonized as saints. But the official number as of today is 921. And to be a saint in the Catholic Church, you have to live an exemplary life, die a heroic death, and you've got to do two miracles. And so when you look at Paul saying, you know, you're called as a saint, you can kind of pass over that and go, okay, kind of different. I'm not sure how to how to track with that. But here's what, what Paul, uh, Paul is saying. He's not referring to our behavior or our achievements. He is referring to our objective position in Christ. The word saint means some, some, someone who is set apart for God's specific use. How many of you in this room have really nice dishes that you got as a wedding present? Really nice dishes. Some of you aren't raising your hands, and I know you have those nice dishes. You got those as a wedding present. Uh, I would imagine you don't use those when you go backpacking at Osage Hills. You don't use those when you go tailgating at Stillwater, in Stillwater or in Norman. Because those dishes are set apart for specific use. Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthdays, and anniversaries. You use plastic stuff in Norman and plastic stuff in Stillwater, not the really nice stuff that you got at your wedding. To be a saint means that you as a follower of Jesus have objectively been set apart for God's specific use. That means I'm not my own. God is my leader. He's my Lord. He's my, my manager. I'm under new management. And if you want to have spiritual influence, you must convey the truth about who you are in Christ and who that person you're influencing is in Christ. This was foundational for me when I was first discipled as, as, a, as a new believer. My disciple maker, who was a guy named Pat Dillon, would constantly tell me who I was in Christ. I thought, this is amazing. I, I feel like I am someone in God's story. That was really helpful to me. Paul, in this book, will add something to the idea of being a saint, and that is the idea of being a citizen. Um, he talks about citizenship twice in this book, uh, in chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 3, verse 20. And he says, our citizenship in 320 is from heaven, and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Philippians, the idea is you are a saint with citizenship. You're a saint with citizenship. Now, what does that exactly mean? Th think of it this way. When you come to Christ, you become very conscious that you are living in a heavenly realm. You're living in a heavenly realm in the sense that God's presence is all around you. The Holy Spirit is inside you. God's angelic realm is all around you. You guys know that Wi-Fi signals are in this room. You know that. You know that radio waves are in this room, you can't see them. You know that TV waves are in this room, you can't see them. That's an invisible realm that's very real, you can't see it. 
you come to Christ, you realize that I live in, in this invisible spiritual realm where God is active and powerful. I'm a citizen of that realm. As a citizen saint, I have the ability to act powerfully in the heavenly places, in my prayers, in my, my spiritual warfare, in my leadings from God that lead to tangible action. I am a citizen saint who has power in the heavenly places. And so part of being a spiritual influencer is to help people understand what that means. And the crux of it, in my opinion, is prayer. It's prayer. You pray as a citizen saint with the expectation that God is dynamically involved in the prayers that you pray. Remember the, the Lord's Prayer? Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches that we might, we should pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you as a citizen saint pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're praying that God's supernatural power in heaven would break through into your earthly situation. So sometimes I, I think about what it would mean for me practically to pray the prayer of a citizen saint. Well, Father, your will be done in Bartlesville as it is in heaven. Does that sound weird to pray that? that that's how you pray the Lord's Prayer as the citizen saint. Lord Jesus, I pray that your will be done in Bartlesville as it is in heaven. Lord, break through into our city. Break through into our neighborhood. Break through into our church. Lord, your will be done in our family as it is in heaven. Lord, let your supernatural power break through into our family. Maybe there's a relational estrangement. Maybe there's need for physical healing. Maybe there's need for financial provision. Lord, your will be done in our family as it is in heaven. You're praying for God's supernatural breakthrough. Father, your will be done at Grace Community Church as it, as it is in heaven. I'm starting to pray that as a citizen saint and as a pastor of Grace Community Church. Um, <clears throat> citizen saints are highly conscious that they live in this new heavenly realm, this new dimension, where there's an encounter with the supernatural and an encounter with the spiritual. So what does that mean for us? Well, quick application. One way, one way to, get a, to wrap your arms around praying as a citizen saint is to keep an answered prayer journal. So I keep this in my Dropbox, and I regularly update this. And the last time I updated this was, was about, uh, about three weeks ago. Because I, 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 will, I will write stuff down in my journal, and then I'll transfer the answered prayers over to my answered prayer journal. And I read through the answered prayer journal, and I've read through that thing dozens of times, and yet things jumped out at me again. God, you did that. You, you answered that prayer 10 years ago. You answered that prayer five years ago. I'm excited about that. Lord, uh, I'm, I'm revved up now with faith about praying some bolder prayers. So one of the ways you pray as a citizen saint is keeping an answered prayer journal. The other thing you do as a citizen saint is prayer in the moment. If somebody comes to you with, with a need, don't say, I'll pray for that, and then walk away. That's, that's not a good way to do it. I remember that for about two years, my son would call me uh, from, 
He was living in Costa Rica at the time. He would call me, and it, I'm on the phone with him, and it, it, the Lord very clearly said, inaudible voice, but very clearly said, Rod, whenever he calls, whenever he calls, you pray for him in the moment, right there on the phone. And what I realized was he was, he was seeking my prayers as his dad. And so I made it a point to do that. That became a really cool part of our relationship during, during that season of his life. And I can remember times where prayer in the moment calmed him. I'll, I'll tell you, I've had times where people have prayed for me in the moment, and it, it calmed me. It's like it shifted the spiritual atmosphere around me. You know, th there are times where somebody can come to you and they're going to be deep in anxiety. And part of that anxiety involves emotions out of control. And you praying in the moment can quell those emotions so the person can see God's power. Citizen saints pray in the moment a lot. That becomes a part of, of their, their lifestyle. One other thing you can do is you can, you can rehearse your position in Christ. Just rehearse it. Lord, I'm, I'm adopted by you. Lord, I'm your child. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. Lord, I'm forgiven by you. Lord, I'm united with, with Jesus in his resurrection. Lord, I'm a joint heir with you. Lord Jesus, I'm a joint heir. Um, Lord, I'm, I'm already glorified, according to Romans 8.30. So citizen saints have a robust internal life that connects with God vitally in the moment. And that leads to the final phase of spiritual influence. Spiritual influence goes back to a kind of leadership that is often called servant leadership. Uh, people, of, of, people of influence discover the art of servant leadership. Now, notice what, what he says here. Um, he says, to all the saints with the overseers and the deacons. Those overseers refer to the elders, and there are two words for elders in the New Testament, elder and overseer. Elder referring to age or really maturity. Overseers referring to action, that is taking responsibility. Now, he also uses the term deacon in here, and the, the idea with the term deacon is that it's, it's actually a transliteration of the Greek, Greek term, and it means servant. It means, means servant. And so, when you think about elders and deacons, you think about a model of spiritual leadership that, is, that goes like this. Biblical leadership is based upon you being a caring, serving individual willing to look out for the best interests of another as they grow, okay? I mean, I will tell you that when Paul writes the book of Philippians and he talks about overseers and deacons, this was a new leadership model. It was a new leadership model. Uh, there were some vestiges of the Roman leadership model positionally, but it was a new, a new model spiritually for sure. And when I look at spiritual influence, I, I think this is how spiritual influence is, is designed to take place. Biblical leadership is based upon you being a caring, serving person, willing to look out for the best interests of another as they pursue spiritual growth. You know, you know what, what, I, what phrase I hear all the time from young men and women is this, I wish... I had a mentor. I hear that all the time. 
I wish I had a mentor. Recently, I was reading an, an, an article about uh, millennials. And one of the things we're saying about millennials is millennials don't care about the age of their mentor. They would love a mentor in, in, in their 60s or 70s or 50s or 40s. doesn't matter the age. What they want is somebody who's authentic. And um, maybe you've felt that way at times. Boy, I'd love to have a mentor. Love to have somebody who could, a wise person who could disciple me. You know, one of the reasons why corporate coaching is exploding right now as a field is because so many companies are hiring younger workers who, who have a lot of responsibility but don't have a lot of leadership savvy. And so companies are hiring corporate coaches to help these young workers learn how to lead better. I'm telling you, we're living in a time where people are hungry to be coached, mentored, discipled. So think about, about you. You know, most people in this room know more about the Bible, more about the Christian life, more about theological issues than 90% of the pastors around the world. Now, we're just blessed in the United States to have a lot of, a lot of biblical and theological information. Everybody in this room has the capacity to provide significant spiritual influence to just one other person. You've got the ability to do that. You might not know it. You might not be confident about that. But you have, clearly, you have that, that ability. You know, the Bible is so clear about this. It's a pattern. Moses mentors Joshua. Elijah does this with Elisha. Paul does this with Timothy, Silas, Luke, and others. Peter did this with John Mark. John does, does this with the first century leader, a guy named Polycarp. Um, this is the pattern. I'm in college. A guy named Pat Dillon decides he wants to mentor and disciple me. I received it gladly for two years. He goes off and leaves Dallas. I'm still at SMU, and I go to a guy in my fraternity house and say, hey, do you want to get together and, and, and read the Bible together and talk about the Scriptures, talk about the Word? Uh, this guy and I remain um, in contact today. Uh, he's doing great. So this is the pattern. Spiritual influencers, um, they embrace a style of leadership called servant leadership, and they use that as a way to mentor others. So if you want spiritual influence... You're going to encounter three things, three things. Thing number one is that God will probably use the very pain that has rocked your life to help somebody else. Number two, God loves to encourage people through positional truth, positional truth. And thirdly, God loves the mentoring relationship. Uh, one of the delights of my life is a memory that I have uh, of uh, probably, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. Uh, we're here, here, here at Grace Community Church. We have Troop 21, and some of the boys are doing God and Country. And uh, we decide that uh, the dads are going to work with the boys, help leading them through this. And so my son Jared says, Dad, I want to go to Egbert's every Thursday morning, and I want you to lead me through a discipleship study. Well, what he really wanted was the food. 
That's what all kids are really motivated by is the food. But he wrote faithfully in that book. And I still have the book, and I still treasure that book. That, that time on Thursday mornings was, was a discipleship event for us. And it bonded us. Bonded us. What I'm saying to you is that if you want to be a person of spiritual influence, um, look, maybe God's going to use your pain to work with somebody else. Uh, God wants you to use your position in Christ to help somebody else. But God wants you to take that, that risky step to say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to find somebody else to meet with and somebody else to mentor. We decided to do the message early on in the service this morning so that we could respond to this um, with worship. And so as we, as we continue to worship, the worship team is going to come up as we continue to worship what, what I, I want you to do is just open yourself up to the leading of God. We talked about God's leadings. We talked about God's specific leadings. As we worship in these, these, next, these next moments, I, I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, who might you lead me to mentor? Who might you lead me to disciple? Is there somebody in my sphere of influence that, that needs for me to be more active as a spiritual caregiver in their life? Uh, if God has answered a prayer for you, I invite you to come forward, light a candle, and celebrate that answered prayer. Uh, but let's, let's enjoy the presence of God and be open to His specific leadings.